Thanks for joining us for Real Deals' Private Net Roundtable. I'm reporter Simon Thompson. As capital markets emerge from a disruptive 2020, private debt is expected to play an increasingly influential role in meeting deal and corporate funding requirements. In this roundtable, we consider the growth of private debt, what's driving it, and what it means for lenders, borrowers, and financial sponsors. We have a strong and balanced lined up for today's discussion. Joining us on our roundtable is Jordan Rothberg, MD at Blue River Partners, Andrea Fernandez in European Credit and Heritage Management, Thibaut Verber, Director at Astor, and Martin Lehers, MD and Head of Global Capital Markets at Morgan Stanley. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. No worries. Uh, so just to set off a bit of info to set the tone for the discussion, according to data from Prequin, private debt is expected to show an annual growth rate of 11.4% to reach 1.4% six trillion US dollars by 2025. This is coming as investors continue to search for yields and attractive risk adjusted returns in a current low interest rate environment. So John, we'll start off with you. From a LP perspective, why are we seeing increased allocations to private debt? So from a fund administration perspective, I'd say it's been probably the most sales calls I've been taking on a day in day out basis. Private debt is just starting to rip in the market yet again. You know, from a fund administration perspective, we tend to see the cycles of debt, real estate, venture capital, private equity kind of flow in, flow out. And I think people are really trying to take advantage of the market specifically. It's an unfortunate time that, no, let me rephrase that. It, it, they're taking advantage of an unfortunate time that is COVID in order to take advantage of it for the market for their investors. And I think that's one of the main drivers as to why the, the debt market is just thriving. Interesting. Andrew, do you want to kind of pick up from there? What are you seeing in the market? What's driving private debt? Um, what kind of growth? What does it look like on your end? So I think the growth uh, has come from eight different angles. I think, well, you have bank retrenchments just to set the stage and you have private uh, capital really filling that void. But I think one of the reasons why uh, LPs like the asset class is because it delivers a pretty consistent high yield. Um, and because it has an illiquidity premium, um, it has a low correlation to fixed income and global equity markets. We saw that last year, you know, assets are floating rate in nature and therefore there's less sensitivity, low, I'm sorry, there's less interest rate sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Their returns are current and contractual in nature. You have less mark to market volatility. The protections tend to be um, stronger. But I do think that, you know, manager selection is key. I think that every strategy yields the same results. Um, For us at Aries, being the sole lender in top performing companies with strong governance and controls have proven to be defensive. Uh, We've been able to to really work with our sponsors to protect our investors' capitals and, and reprice risk in the capital structure where appropriate. Interesting. Thibaut, could you kind of speak to some of the strategic drivers behind LP interest and also where their return expectations sit? I'm sorry, that, that question time sorry, was... Oh, pardon me, I'm not sure if it came through. For you, Thibaut, could you kind of talk about the strategic drivers behind LP interest and also their return expectations? So I think the return expectations definitely varied with the risk return of the asset class. Uh, in general, I think people at the asset level expect high teens, do- low double-digit um, 
IRRs. Um, I guess the strategic drivers, again, I think if you compare it with other asset class, you know, within private debt, you know, the mezzanine market continues to shrink in Europe, given the strength of the high yield market at the, at, at the large end of the market. Uh, for the small end of the market, you have the unit tranche that really plays um, that asset class. You have special seats, distress strategies that really offer a different risk return profile and in many ways are more akin to a private equity risk. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the reasons why investors like to partner with us in direct lending is because we operate in all weather strategy that delivers strong, but also consistent risk adjusted returns, albeit probably lower than, for, for example, a special seats distress strategy, particularly in so, at some points of the economic cycles. But if I look at our global direct lending portfolios, we saw very modest NAV movement. There was really not that much mark to market. Um, and if I look back, uh, we've delivered current yield uh, throughout all of our capital pools over the pandemic. So I think that's one of the reasons why LPs really like this asset class. Interesting. And I think that would drive continued growth. Um, moving to you, uh, Thibaut. I wanted to kind of get a sense, how has COVID changed the relative attractiveness of bank syndicated debt instruments as opposed to private debt? I mean, the key differentiators between these two instruments, as uh, Andrea and Martin will know definitely, is probably the covenants, which is one of the key differentiators. Um, and and most of the private debt, at least in Europe, uh, it's moving ahead in the, into the U.S., but have, have a covenant, uh, a covenant which indeed has, uh, has a lot of importance when you are discussing a, I mean, a company in the COVID environment, a cyclical retail business, for example. Uh, so that's the key differentiators between the two asset class, meaning that uh, in such an environment, having a COV-like instrument, so, so no maintenance covenants uh, is, is pretty key and very supportive as well. Now, there's, there's, there's all the factors, obviously, uh, to, to take into account uh, beyond, above and beyond the simple documentations because you, you may have stronger long-term relationship with, uh, with the direct lending side of it when, you have, when you're facing one, two, or three lenders maximum uh, compared to the syndicated market where you are most of the time, and Martin will correct me, but probably facing at least 25, if not 30 different investors. So, obviously, you don't have the same relationships. And you may have um, different views uh, on each of these asset class. Interesting. So, in the same vein, um, Martin, if you could kind of speak to that, but also how private debt managers have fared through this crisis into respect of managing their own portfolios. Yeah, in terms of how how private debt managers have fared in this crisis, I'll, I'll probably defer to Andrea. But I mean, in terms of the different phases, the um, uh, the, the key differentiator, right? I think the other differentiator that I would highlight probably is the, is the yield point. It depends on where you are exactly in the cycle, where the market is at that point in time. Um, and clearly we've seen some volatility over the course of the last 12 months in particular, right? I think the syndicated loan market and the high yield market was for all intents and purposes uh, shut for a period of time um, over the course of Q2 last year came back really, really strongly, in particular post the uh, US election results in, in, in Q3 and Q4, and at this stage is you know, really, really going very, very strongly at this stage. 
Um, and I think the, the yield differential is, is clearly there, right? Andrea mentioned before what the expectations were on the private debt side. I think in the syndicate alone market, it is, it is a market with, uh, let's call it a significant number of players, a significant amount of pressure to deploy capital. And as a result, I think the, uh, the price um, that you would see in this market also tends to be a little bit lower. It is also not as much of a bespoke instrument to a certain extent. It's a more standardized documentation as well. Uh, so there's always pros and cons, but I think that would be the other differences worth raising. Interesting. So, um, John, I just kind of want to defer back to you. You've mentioned that you're taking, you know, increasing number of calls. You're getting a lot of inquiries. Do you feel like the market can continue to sustain same level of growth and new entrants that it has done, um, you know, maybe just since 2008 and the financial crisis? I mean, is there has there been a second kind of wind? What, what's the kind of state of as at the moment? Yeah, no, I definitely think in the, in the States, the wind is was blowing strong in the, the private debt and credit markets right now. I, I definitely say that uh, it's it's what we're, we're seeing the most that's upticking. And I think it's just because investors are, it's a bit more way for their investors to secure their money and receive better returns over a long period of time. You know, whereas over the private equity side, when you're just doing straight equity, there's the risk return ratio of whether or not the deal is going to hit or not. And you don't know where that's going to go. So I think I think there's the sales are strong for what's going on with private debt right now. And I think it'll continue to grow um, over the next couple of years. Interesting. So we, before we move on to uh, you know, certain areas where there is you know, growth and kind of different debt products and solutions, Andrew, can you maybe just give us a sense um, of how debt managers have fared through the crisis in respect, in respect to managing their port like existing portfolios? I think in general, the asset class has weathered their storm well. Part of it is because a lot of the managers had uh, underlying exposure to strong sectors such as healthcare and telecom that have feathered the, have weathered uh, the storm relatively well. Uh, but we also saw the benefits of credit selection and, and strong underwriting. I think the, the, the one aspect that the crisis highlighted was the benefits of scale, uh, not just of AUM, but also of team and infrastructure. So access to deep sources of capital and, and resources were very important for direct lenders to, to manage 2020. So I think when, what you'll see is that you'll continue to see growth in the asset class because the banks continue to retrench in the middle market and there's a void there, but I think LPs will start supporting a core group of managers and, and will be and will and you'll see less backing for new entrants uh, for indirect lending. So a state of market consolidation basically there. Interesting. Tim, I want to defer back to you. Obviously there's, you know, we all agree there's kind of a fair bit of growth and momentum there. Where are the specific areas where we feel like there's going to be major attention from investors and also in terms of LPs and investors and also just demand from borrowers as well? What's driving the growth in direct lending itself? I think if you look at the UK, it's probably the most mature market. But if you sort of go throughout Europe, there's markets where um, banks continue to dominate a large share of the market, so such as like the Nordics or Benelux. So I, I think you'll see growth um, in those markets in continental Europe. Um, the other trend that we've been seeing at Aries is really the convergence of the private and the public markets. Um, we do have the 
the, the capital base to be relevant for larger borrowers. Now, you know, the, cap, the capital markets are very competitive and borrowers can access pretty cheap cost of borrowing. So it's not for every company, but we've seen a lot of situations where large companies decide to pay a premium because they want the confidentiality, they want the certainty of execution, they wanna know who their counterparty is, they wanna have ability to, to grow through follow-on uh, capital. And so I think that also is going to probably drive a lot of the growth, um, at least in the near to me medium term. Interesting. Okay, so I just kind of want to get a broader sense. Um, where do we feel like banks are going to more inclined to retrench? Obviously, there's been previous retrenchments from the market that have created open, open areas for private to come in and kind of dominate. Um, where do we feel like is, is that happening again? And where's that opportunity? Where is that window? Shall I, shall I take that one? Yeah, that might go for you. So in terms of banks retrenching, I guess what we saw in, in 2008 and 2009 is that you, you, you I think the market um, observed that the European banks in particular were playing across the globe, across all sorts of geographies. And I think what we saw thereafter is um, the European banking universe retrenching to their home markets in particular. Um, that uh, theme continues, if you like. I mean, the Germans are very, very strong in, um, in the DAC region, but operate much less than they used to do in the UK or in France or elsewhere, albeit with, with, with certain exceptions. Um, but in terms of, of future retrenching, I think it comes back to you know, I think uh, banks just have a certain criteria and a lending policy that is hard to adjust too rapidly, too quickly. And so, you know, I think when there are, you know, macro shocks in the environment, in fact, you know, obviously, as we've seen in the last 12 months, I think it is much easier for the private debt community to adjust to that environment, you know, the credits which perhaps in the near term don't fit the traditional sort of lending criteria that a commercial bank may have, but equally is probably a very viable um, business. And I think if you're in the private debt space, you can probably look through cash flow limitations for a couple of years, create an instrument which is bespoke and catered for that particular situation. And again, I think that's easier to do in the private debt community as opposed to in the regular way banking community. So you could argue that arguably in the more volatile um, industries or the more impacted industries by COVID that the banks will struggle a little bit more perhaps than, than the private debt community. Equally, I would add that the banking community is clearly um, been given the mandate um, by let's call it society, but also regulators and central banks to ensure that capital flows continue, right? That uh, liquidity remains in the system and that is you know ever present. So. I think a, a, a retrenching as such isn't there, but as I said, I think there are some areas where banks will struggle more than the private debt community. Interesting. Um, I think I can add uh, as to how the banks will continue to get exposure to that type of risk. I think doing direct, direct middle market lending uh, for the challenges um, that Martin just outlined um, will continue to you know, will continue to drive retrenchment, but I think the banks continue to want to have that risk. So 
a way that we partner with the banks is through asset-backed fund-level leverage. So they're getting exposure to the underlying companies, but they're getting a better regulatory treatment because they're investing in a pool of assets rather than that single company. We also sometimes partners with banks on first out, last out pieces where they take a very small super senior term loan at the top of the capital st structure, which has limited risk uh, for them and at the same time dilutes the, the cost of borrowing to, to our companies. Interesting. Um, Tibor, I'm going to get a sense, um, where, where are the real opportunities in the current state of the market and kind of downsides and risks uh, exist for where you sit in the market and kind of your your role in the market? At, at the moment, uh, there's probably, I mean, there's uh, there's limited downside and a, a lot of opportunities streaming from, as we've been discussing, indeed, uh, this new asset class uh, increasingly penetrating the, um, the, leverage, the leverage finance markets. Uh, so the, the opportunity is really to um, to, to, to benefit from a very attractive unit front stems uh, and have some and test put some competition as well to the more capital market uh, exposure as well. So that's probably the, 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 the real benefit at the moment. I can see nevertheless that in the smaller credits, um, the, in the smaller size financing, maybe the market, which was uh, still a capital market in the, in, call it in 200, maybe 250 million, term loan is now kind of a little bit more and more difficult to access, I, I feel, but Martin will correct me maybe, uh, given the strength of the, uh, of the unit range alternatives in, in, in this specific market. So, so there's, there's a market whereby uh, you, you now have a more difficult alternative, more difficult choice uh, than before, which is this exact middle market side. Um, and John, you know, obviously, like tailoring off what he was kind of said, how long will this market be in this state where of major growth and opportunity for, um, you know, your stakeholders, like how long will it stabilize and kind of, I guess, normalize? How long is this going to be kind of in this position for of growth? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll defer to the Beaver and Andrew on that just because they're, they're sitting on that side of the world. I think the, the one thing, one point I wanted to bring up is that, you know, for those limited partners that are investing in these direct funds, it's first come to the market and, and they're able to deploy the capital very quickly and they're able to get in on an expedited basis. And I think that's where, you know, coming out of 2020, we're able to, you know, rip a bit more, at least in the States where we're able to get in very quickly to these different positions and be able to grow the funds accordingly. Andrew, do you want to pick up on that? How, how long is this opportunity? I've like, obviously there's a massive opportunity at the moment. How long, how, how far, how much runway does it have before it maybe stabilizes and normalizes a bit? Look, I think it's it's the million dollar question. We don't know. Uh, I think what we know is that the UK is relatively matured, as I mentioned. We don't think that the banks are going to exit completely uh, like they did in the US. We also know that there's certain geographies that are picking up and a lot of sponsors in those geographies are realizing that private debt is a very user-friendly product. So that will continue to drive growth. And, and you know, as I said, the convergence between the liquid and the private markets, it's another avenue of growth. But I think it's hard at this stage 
to kind of have an outlook of how many years uh, of growth we're looking for, we're looking at. But but I think what's interesting is that that the, the funds, and I don't want to speak on anyone's behalf here, but I think that the fund and the fund managers are really starting to pivot and, and start to become more a bit more strategic, as Andrew was implying, right? So maybe taking a direct lending approach and then bringing in a banking platform as well, like to, to double down almost, it's, it's able to get a bigger piece of the pie, but also, you know, they've been doing it one way for so long, you have to pivot a little bit as and, and adjust rather as, as time progresses. Would you say that in, in that vein, uh, private debt lenders are in some extent going head to head with banks or is it, are they kind of forming a function that they're moving away from or haven't done at all? I think very strategic fund managers are going head to head with banks. I think it just depends on the size of the fund and the size of the investment class that they're looking for, right? If it's if it's a billion dollar plus fund, I would imagine they're going against uh, the big banks in, in that or billion dollar plus funds. Uh, they are going against the big banks. Whereas if it's more the the lower middle market side of the world, they might the the direct lending market is is probably quicker to get in than the big bank just because of the I'm going to guess red tape that there might be at the bank side as opposed to the direct lending side. Uh, certainly cases, but more on a broad maybe this one for you, Matt, on a more broader scale. Is there sort of a market split um, with banks focusing on specific areas and then private debt funds maybe looking to kind of consolidate and dominate others? I wouldn't I wouldn't say there's a split per se, but there is. Um, uh, Thibault mentioned it. There's a certain focus that the respective markets have, right? So first of all, size. The syndicated loan market um, isn't necessarily restricted to transactions of 250 or so or larger. without any maintenance covenants, that is typically the domain of transactions which are in that size or bigger, right? 250 plus. Um, so, you know, that is, that is you know, let's call it some way of defining the market. And, and if you're lower than that, typically you will require a covenant. It is either a commercial banking product or it is something that can go or would go perhaps to the private debt community. Right. So there are there are certain sort of features of the market, right, which you which you struggle to get away from. And as I said before, I think that the, the broader syndicated loan market is also a little bit more standardized, if you like. You know, there are lots of sort of unique features that can be added from transaction to transaction and in, in, in the documentation. But for example, take currency, right? The, the, the market is dominated by it being euro denominated to a certain extent, also uh, sterling, but to a lesser degree um, since 2016, given related to the Brexit vote, and now perhaps it's recovering again, but still it is somewhat Euro driven. So for example, if we had an issuer or a sponsor looking for a, um, a regional currency, take one of the Nordic currencies, for example, it becomes more difficult for the broader syndicated loan market to compete with that, the, that being the institutional market, if you're looking for a covenant night transaction. If you want a covenant to try, I think we're having a bit of technical difficulty, Martin. There, um, thank you, Martin. Um, Tim, I just want to defer to you again. Um, is there any kind of particular um, providers or strategies that you are looking to back or are concerned or of interest at you guys at the moment when you're making decisions about who you're investing in? 
if so uh, to refer to questions if we are uh, using uh, one financing alternative versus the other so um, uh, looking at the banking uh, alternative versus uh, a firm alternatives i think when when looking at financing it's i mean as martin defined it's it's a there's several questions to look at it first there's a question of size uh, because obviously uh, below a certain size the 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 the, the uh, capital markets syndicated markets will not be uh, available for such financing above and beyond this size i think it's a matter of uh, looking at the company and the quality of the company uh, acknowledging that uh, as martin was saying the capital market is re relatively standardized regulate with with a regular base of investors which are probably not going to look at the most uh, um, most uh, strange or specific uh, situations uh, which a private lenders maybe may have the capacity to do so obviously a private lender will have a, a portfolio of uh, of loan which may be smaller so it'll have more time to dedicate to such uh, such investments compared to the the capital market side of it so I think it's a question of size, question of quality of the asset, question of speed as well, uh, which is uh, obviously offered by the um, uh, the unitrench or direct lending side of it. And last but not least, the question of complexity, complexity of the management, ability to run a syndication rating process and the like. Interesting. So obviously we've talked quite a bit of, you know, different stakes of the market that banks have versus um, private, private debt lenders. Um, Andrew, could you kind of talk about is there any kind of opportunity or many opportunities for complementary um, funding between banks and private debt lenders in terms of working together, maybe taking different sections of facilities um, to, you know, for the best solution for, for borrowers, basically? I mean, as I mentioned, that we partner with banks and, and I think banks are here to stay. Uh, we partner through them through fund level leverage, through uh, first out, last out positions in syndicated um, in the syndicated markets. And we we have backed, for example, anchored some transactions um, in the in the first lien market. We have provided second lien uh, options behind a first lien term loan that it's um, that has been syndicated in the capital markets. So there's a lot of ways that we have worked together with banks, and I think that partnership will continue in the future. Interesting. So I want to kind of make another view on the market. Um, Jordan, you're in the US, the private debt market in the US has probably, has historically at least been a bit more progressed. Could you kind of give us a sense of maybe some of the differences you see or what you see in the US that's perhaps coming on the horizon for us in the UK and mainland Europe? For, look, I'm not going to lie. From a, like a direct investing side, I would defer to the other experts on the panel, considering I, I sit behind the funds, not uh, in front of them. Getting out there from an investing perspective, I think one thing that um, that is probably the biggest hot topic button in the United States, and, and how it can be factored into your fund, especially from a fundraising perspective, would be ESG and how that factors in to your fund, and, and what implications your investors might want to step into from a risk profile perspective to make sure that we're, we're factoring that in when investing in the underlying entities. But I would obviously defer to the esteemed colleagues on the call to 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 see how the investment side is going from the U.S. into the U.K. and abroad. Martin, did you want to pick that up? Yeah. I, Sorry, I thought she said. Go ahead, Marty. Uh, yeah. So so just in terms of in terms of uh, investment themes, I mean, we, Jordan mentioned ESG. It's a big topic in any market. I would say at this stage, right? It's been obviously something that's arguably been in the market for a long, long period of time, 
um, but it is it is clearly you know relevant as we encounter um, investors in our transactions, which we bring to market. You know, I think the on the equity side, uh, Tebow will confirm as well. It is absolutely paramount uh, on the fundraising side or the private equity community. It is literally um, a, a, an all-encompassing aspect of the finance world at this stage, right? So that is that is certainly a, a big theme, and how that translates into transactions. Um, I guess we will see over the next coming months. You know, we've already seen certain margin ratchets being introduced into transactions linked to certain um, key um, indicators being met and thresholds being met. So I think that's a, that's a very live and real-time evolving uh, situation. Um, I would say that came a little bit more maybe from Europe going to the US as opposed to say actually the other way around. Um, but that is that is clearly a, a big theme at the moment. Usually in fairness though, it is uh, we see a lot of themes coming from the US to Europe. This is could you elaborate on, that, on the, oh yeah, go Jordan, you go. I was saying this is a theme that is the hottest topic in the US currently. And I completely agree. It's definitely something that the uh, Europe is way ahead of the curve on. And it's not to say that Ameri uh, US and American fund managers aren't considering ESG whatsoever, but I think it is now in, from a fundraising perspective, it is definitely a, not a check the box exercise, but it is a, it needs to be something that is checked in order for an investor to enter into the fund, depending on where they fall into that, that need from an ESG perspective. It's, it's, one of the biggest things I've seen recently, which is fascinating. I mean, what Very does it look cool. like? Is it just increasing priority on it? Or, I mean, maybe you can take that up, Tibor, but what does it actually look like just increasing demand for it? How's it manifest? I can take that. I think, look, I think investors have brought it to the forefront of their investment objective. Uh, and therefore, that's really pushing the industry to be more accountable for ESG. I think historically, there was an argument that because direct lenders at the end of the day don't control the company, that the involvement needed to be at the screening stage rather than during the life of the investment. And I think um, LPs are challenging that convention. Uh, and that's why I think you hear, hear it more talked about in the market. You know, they are saying, look, if you're a scale lender and you have a long-term relationship with these companies and these sponsors, um, and you definitely are a counterparty with influence. Sometimes you're the only person in that capital structure besides the, besides the sponsors. You should be able to push and make these companies uphold high, high ESG standards. I think the other uh, topic that is being talked about is that oftentimes you're lending to middle market companies that are small and probably don't have the resources or the infrastructure to really be tracking policies and frameworks. And I think the direct lender can act as a resource in that in that situation. I think all of those are themes that are really being pushed by the LP community. Uh, and, and again, we've been raising funds and I think we've seen um, how much more accountability the investor community is asking uh, on the direct lending side. Uh, on ESG practices. Interesting. So, sorry, I kind of cut you off, Timo. My apologies. Um, did you want to kind of elaborate on ESG? No, no, I, I, I totally echo uh, Andrea as well. The the, um, the uh, LP community as well is pushing. We probably have a similar LP base at the end of the day. So, they are clearly pushing us as well uh, to be more accountable at the 
at the at the ASTOG level, but also to push that to each of our portfolio companies. And obviously, the most importantly, is you need to push that to the smaller size, uh, smaller businesses, whereby the easy function is probably not uh, not a real solid function and usually done part time by the CEO, for example, the CFO or like. Uh, so we are clearly uh, getting more and more uh, questions and uh, focus from our IPs on that front. Uh, we are definitely uh, pushing that as well uh, to our to our debt uh, partners as well, whether that's uh, on the unit on the direct lending side, but also on the capital market side, where we've seen a couple of uh, a couple of names in the leverage finance market being uh, properly ESG for compliance, as Martin was saying, and clearly this year we will. Uh, I mean, part of our objective is to make uh, uh, a big third of our, if not half of our debt finance, new debt finance, uh, purely ESG friendly. We're even thinking, so and, uh, uh, Martin, uh, that's even one, we're even thinking actually turning an old financing into a uh, ESG friendly one. Interesting. How's that received, Armand? Um, I mean, how's from your end of the market, um, what's the kind of general view on that? Well, I, I think um, we've we've all mentioned it. It touches all facets of, of the market at this stage, right? And what that translates into in tangible terms for us on on the sell side when we're selling loans or bonds is is, is actual demand, um, and as a result, pricing and um, you know the execution that you can achieve. So you know, I think uh, perhaps you know whether it was eighteen months ago or two years ago, ESG was. A question um, during the process, the marketing process. Um, you know, there was uh, a lot of Q and A on the topic. Whereas I think nowadays it feels like you know it is it's much more of a uh, it is a question, but it drives actual demand, right? Being managed um, by the investor community that will uh, perhaps not invest if the answers are very different, um, and so therefore it's, it's, you know, has a direct impact on how we can execute a transaction and what the best pricing is that can be achieved as a result. And, and while I know we're focusing on credit and debt, I, I, I think what's interesting is that this is not, just to, to completely change the topic of this whole conversation, it's not just focused on credit and debt, it's spanning across the entire industry, whether it's agriculture or real estate or just straight private equity investments. And I think it's, it's a, it's an awesome wave that's sweeping the world. And it's, it's, it's important that our investors are thinking about this on a day in and day out basis. And it's reshaping how companies are building and informing. Is there a kind of, I've, this is the big criticism I've heard with this ESG is with ESG more generally is the lack of standardization and the metrics and how well they actually kind of communicate or actually show materiality of result from a private debt perspective and also managing funds with ESG in mind, what kind of challenges come with this and what more progress needs to be made in terms of fleshing out those KPIs? I think one of the challenges that we see, for example, is that some of these companies are small and don't have the resources to really be tracking these KPIs or even be doing anything uh, with the data internally. So I think that's a big challenge for direct lenders. You can push it, but the company perhaps is not well-resourced to, to be able to address it. And, and again, I think LPs are, are, are saying, well, you will need to help. And they're holding the direct lending or the direct lender or the private equity 
uh, or the shareholder accountable for helping those companies push those ESG um, frameworks and making sure that it's part of their everyday operations rather than just a check the list and a, and a KPI that goes into a system. I would, I would add to that from, and I, I don't know the answer and I'm just going to float it out there. It's from an accounting perspective, as we've seen the, the valuations of, regardless of whether it's private debt, private equity, real estate, have, have we seen the, from an accounting perspective, how valuations have evolved in financial statements, where ESG might fall in down the road into financial statement metrics, if that is a key competency or a core competency rather for the underlying managers. It'll be interesting to see if that ever gets kind of flown into the financial statement footnotes somewhere. Or more earlier in the process is kind of what you're saying as opposed to kind of more to the down. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. More from like a tracking perspective. So that way, you, as, as Andrew is alluding to, you're holding, your the LPs are holding their investor, their, sorry, their funds uh, honest to it and saying, well, if this is something you're touting, then, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Let's let's show it to everyone and, and how we're doing it. So I want to move to uh, eyeball transitioning. Um, from a debt kind of asset manager's perspective, is it playing out the way it was anticipated to? Every organization has a different approach. I think in Aries, we are a global credit firm, and therefore that has been at the forefront of our agenda. We formed a committee um, back a few years ago when this was announced, and what we have been doing is making sure that all of our documents have, you know, replacement benchmark language in them uh, to make sure that we are having a smooth transition, but more importantly, uh, we get to a place where it's economically neutral for both us, uh, the manager, but also for the companies. But I'll let Martin um, maybe chime in on their perspectives. Yeah, it's, it's it's quite similar, right? I think we have a um, we have a, a team internally that's been working with the loan market association specifically on, um, you know, deriving a, a suitable, um, you know, revised benchmark, but specifically the um, coming up with the right language that would be inserted into the documentation. Um, that's been obviously a project that's been going on for a number of years. I think the key thing, as Andrea highlighted, is that we're looking to move to something which is, to quote uh, Andrea just now, economically neutral. I think that is one of the, the key sort of drivers here. Um, but it's obviously not a very simple um, transition. You know, there's a lot of work that has been done. There's still probably more work that needs to be done. You know, from a sell side perspective, in a way, you know, what we're looking for is the wording that is the consensus is it consensus if you like equivalent to your born live or currently and then it is a, a fact of just updating the documentation um for it but i think you know the updating the documentation is the easy part the more is finding that consensus in the first place which you know i think we're, we've done a lot of work on uh, between the banks and uh, as i said the loan market association in particular as well fascinating so Fairly pretty interesting stuff. We're going to wrap it up shortly, but before we kind of finish up, I just wanted to get a statement kind of, or a sense from each of you, where you sit in the market, what the next four years hold for the private debt market. Uh, Jordan, maybe you want to start us off. Well, look, strategically from an IQ perspective, I really hope the, 
the private deck mar market continues to rip and grow, uh, we are able to service the fund administration side of it from, from end to end. And I think that is, uh, my outlook is really hopeful and excited for it. But uh, I personally do believe that it is, it, it will continue to grow. Um, I, I think that investors are really getting involved and wanting to take advantage of the market, current market conditions. So hopefully those will maintain as we proceed. Martin, do you want to touch on that as well, and then we'll move to Tibor and Andrea? Yeah, I think the um, the private debt market will continue to grow in the same way as I think the the overall debt markets will grow. Um, I think it is um, it was mentioned before that the banking community certainly isn't going anywhere, um, and uh, frankly, the institutional debt market is is also growing. So that is the high yield bond market or the syndicated loan market. I think there are many situations now and going forward where you can try and optimize um, the, the, the capital structure uh, for the companies. And um, that could be a combination of both. So it is not just you know, one or the other. But I think all of these markets, if you look at the trend for the last couple of years, are heading towards a, a, a steady growth. Tibo, how about you? What's your general view? No, I, I, I fully support the idea indeed. I mean, the, the two, two asset classes are, uh, I've been growing a lot. I think the what has happened probably over the last year is the uh, the private debt market to become a little bit more institutionalized, if that's if if I may say, with a clear dif differentiation on each of the products, making it a little bit more maybe easier friendly or easier to to read or to understand um, compared to the syndicated market, which is by definition a very transparent market. Um, the the two solutions are. Uh, well coexisting, I believe, each of them having clearly different features, different uh, perspective, different uh, attractiveness uh, according to the transaction you're looking at. And obviously, every time uh, we on the private equity look at new transactions, uh, it's most of the time pretty obvious which di direction, which routes uh, the financing will go between the two asset classes. I hope that will continue. Uh, and I don't believe then the two asset classes really going head to head is necessarily good for the long term of the industry as it would, uh, I mean, create uh, potentially some slight of, I mean, will create at one point in time a slightly more borrower friendly environment, of course, so it should benefit to me, yes, but I don't believe that in the long term that's the right way to, 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 to get financing in place. Uh, I, I would only hope that the two asset class continue their route uh, on the differentiated but, uh, but attractive products for, for each of them. Interesting. Andrea, next four years, what does it hold for the private debt market? I think there's a lot of space to continue to grow, um, but I think we'll also see signs of maturity of that market. Uh, what I mean by that is that you'll see you know, ESG triple in and people becoming more demanding. You'll see some managers exit the market, um, less new entrants in the markets. I think you'll see maybe a little bit more consolidation. Um, but in general, I think that the trends for, for growth remain there. Um, and, you know, I think this crisis um, also allowed um, investors to, to see the fundamental investment thesis um, of the asset class. Uh, they saw that in fact, it was resilient. They saw that in fact, there was less mark-to-market movements. They saw how the robust prote uh, contractual protections 
uh, worked. Um, and, and I think that will give investors comfort to continue to commit to the asset class. Fascinating. Well, thank you for joining us, Jordan, Andrea, Thibault, and Martin, um, for recording of this uh, Real Deals Private Debt Roundtable and the latest in private equity news. You can always go to realdeals.eu.com. I'm Simon Thompson. Um, thanks to our guests for joining us.